They're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, so I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we're going to go through verse 10. Uh, We are uh, just doing kind of a one-off sermon today, we focus on what is the church, Uh, and then we have a guest preacher coming next week, where I'll be out of town, and um, and then we'll do our monthly psalm, and then we're going to jump into a new series at the end of the month. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Philippians. And so uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, that. Love that letter. Um, huge impact on my own life. So looking forward to unpacking Philippians with you over the course of the next three or four months. Um, so that, again, will start at the end of the month <clears throat> after a few weeks. Well, we're in First uh, Peter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you you can use. We'll be looking uh, at verse 4 through 10. If, if, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy Word. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Father, open our eyes to the supernatural. Open our eyes to what's really going on in the world and in the church. Show us Jesus. Speak to your people this morning. Be with us as we read and as we study your word and hear it proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up, I was a huge fan of the Magic Eye books. Do you remember those? The Magic Eye books? I don't even know if they still make them. Um, I don't know if like, they're against them now because eye doctors think they're bad for your eyes. Maybe that's why I have an astigmatism. But you know what I'm talking about? The Magic Eye books, they were a picture of this. Um, you couldn't really see any image on it, but it was uh, colors and lines and patterns but if you looked at it a, a right way, a certain way, there was a whole new image behind it, a whole new picture, and it would pop out. And they say you would have to like get really close. The instructions would say you get really close to it, and then you back up slowly, and there it appears. But I learned a trick. You just cross your eyes a little bit, <laughs> and then you can see the image. So I really worked hard at crossing my eyes, and my, I think my mom really didn't like that. She didn't want me to grow up cross-eyed. But I liked it. I enjoyed it. 
There was more that meets the eye at that. When you see that, you don't see any picture, but if you look at it just right, there's more to the story. There's more than meets the eye. I think often when we look at the church, all we see is this lackluster, ragtag group of disciples. Nothing special, right? Just common, just ordinary. When I look at the disciples and, and the Gospels, that's what I see, just some ordinary guys. Not that great. But what makes the church special? What makes the church unique? I grew up in a nominally Christian home that went to church regularly. Let me say that again. A nominally Christian home that went to church regularly. That's, I, don't think that, I think that's a rare breed today, where you call yourself a Christian and you still go to church every week. I don't, I don't want to say we didn't believe in anything, but we didn't understand the gospel. We didn't understand that it was all about grace and, 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 and you, you enter into a relationship with Jesus through the free, grift, free grace of his love. And nothing you can do can earn that. But we went to church every week. And, you know, I grew up as a kid, little kid, sitting in church, bored. I was bored. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to go play my video games. I wanted to go watch a movie. Uh, I remember times where I would literally be lying flat on the ground underneath the pew, coloring or drawing. My mom was, I was probably uh, embarrassing her. But, but they got us there every single week. I was there. It was strange if we weren't there. There was a major reason at as I was growing up, why I discount, discounted the church. The reason I discounted the church is I, I knew little to nothing and cared less about the importance and, and place of God's people in God's heart, of how much He actually cares and loves His people, the church. And there were a few reasons why I didn't know that, and, th- and they are in our text. I didn't know the supernatural foundation, the supernatural identity, and the supernatural destiny of, of the church that makes it unique from any institution in the entire world. And what do I mean by supernatural? What I mean is that the church did not originate in the world. It, it, it is not man's idea. We did not come up with this, what we're doing right now. It was God's idea. And it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing on the planet like the church. It exists by God's power. I'm always reminded of that, that God's power resides in the church when, we, when I go to Presbytery. And we just had Presbytery right here on Thursday night. And what Presbytery is, is when our church... Uh, meets with all the other churches we're in connection with, which is about 16 other churches in the Hampton Roads area, and all their pastors and elders come together, and we worship together, we, and then we have business, church business together. We make decisions for the, for the entire church. But I'm reminded of God's power because I hear the testimonies of, of what God is doing in other churches, and it reminds me that we're just one part of a huge movement of God and his power, and what he's doing through his church. I'm always amazed to see how big and grand God's plan is. 
And it's done through so ordinary means. It's done through this ordinary means of, of preaching. It's done through an ordinary means of sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayers and fellowship. God is transforming lives and families and neighborhoods through these ordinary means. And how does it happen? It happens because of our supernatural foundation, identity, and destiny. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's look first at our foundation. What is that supernatural foundation? What do we stand on? Well, look first at what Peter says in verse 4. As you come to him. As you come to him. What does he mean by that? How do we come to Jesus? Well, we come to his message. We come to the good news. We come to the message of what he, who he is and what he's done. And what do we hear about him? As you come to him, a living stone. That Jesus is a living stone. What did Peter mean by that, a living stone? Well, first, living. Living. Jesus is alive. He says so at the end of the, of the Bible in Revelation 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. He tells us he is alive. If you are to come to Jesus, you have to know he's alive. You are not coming to a theoretical religion of, or a philosophy where you just have to assent to a belief. You are coming to a person when you come to Jesus. That's how you come to him. You know he's real and he is alive and he's at the, he's at the right hand of God the Father and he comes to us through the Holy Spirit, indwells his people. He's alive. That's the first part of living stone. The second is stone. What is a stone? Stone is something that's strong. It's reliable. It's something you can build with. I think it's interesting Peter calls Jesus a stone because Jesus called him the rock. He's returning the favor back to Jesus. He's strong. He's reliable. You can build your life upon him and his words. You know, Jesus actually said that about himself. He equated with hearing and obeying his words as, as building your life upon a rock. Matthew 7, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, the beat against the house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. He's a living stone. He's alive. He's, he's, he's solid. A living stone, but what? What else does Peter say? Rejected by men. We can say that clearly about Jesus, can't we? He was rejected in his life and in his ministry. He was not only rejected by the world who crucified him, but even his disciples were scattered the night he died. Jesus was left alone. And you know, he's still rejected by people. I don't have to really convince you of that, do I? That Jesus is still rejected. He's rejected in how people 
misunderstand him, misidentify him, or have want nothing to do with him. You've heard people say, don't, don't give me that Jesus business. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about Jesus. Why? Why do people still reject him? Well, I think it's as simple as this. Because he came to call sinners to repentance and reign over them as their good king. In our evangelism Sunday school class, which you're welcome to join us if you haven't come after, the, after uh, worship, we're talking about the pain line. When you share the gospel with someone, it can get awkward, it can get tense, it can get, it's difficult, especially when sharing with family who don't believe. And one of the reasons it's so painful is because people don't like to acknowledge what's wrong with them, right? I don't like to acknowledge, I don't like to be shown where I'm wrong, but that's the fundamental first part of the gospel is that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved. That's the offense of the cross. You can't get around that. People don't like to acknowledge what's wrong with them, but also we don't like to submit to an authority that we first didn't choose ourselves. Right? We don't like to submit to a king that we didn't necessarily were drawn to. But he calls us to do both. To submit to him, acknowledge we need to be saved by him. And as we come to him, this message of Jesus as living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, we're reminded that we have to make a decision about Jesus. Everybody has to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. In fact, your destiny depends upon your response to him. Jesus in the Gospels actually and this is probably where Peter's getting this. He, he mentions these two verses, the stone that the builders rejected, a stone of a stumbling and a rock of defense. He applies that to himself in his own life and ministry. Jesus says so in Luke 20. He says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush He's saying, if you don't believe in me, you're going to be crushed. The stone will crush you. So much for Jesus meek and mild, right? When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the question for you today, if you don't know Jesus, and even if you do, you have to always ask yourself, is Jesus my cornerstone? Or is he my stumbling stone? A rock of offense. What's he going to be for you? And in in verse 8, Peter continues, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here he's, I think he's particularly talking about those who rejected Jesus. And it was, it was destined. It was, it was predestined that they were to reject Jesus because he was prophesied to be crucified and someone had to turn against him. I think what Peter's also reminding us is that everybody has a destination. From God's point of view, your story is settled. It's complete. It's written down. We all have a destination. But that doesn't cancel out what I like to call agency. We still have a choice to make. You still have a choice to make. Every time we hear the gospel preached, 
You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to respond in faith. That's why we preach the gospel to everyone. That's why God would be just to punish anyone in hell because they rejected his word in the end. Destiny doesn't cancel out agency. We have to respond. But how does God define Jesus? We know he's rejected, but verse 4, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Friends, Jesus is precious to his Father. He's beloved by his Father. He's chosen, and he's our only way to the Father. There's no other way. You cannot go around Jesus to get into heaven and to get to be with the Father. Everything relies upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything relies upon that message. You know, when we um, when COVID came, almost every church became televangelists, right? Every pastor became a televangelist. We all had to get on TV, and we had to begin uh, broadcasting our services online because people were at home. And so because of that, many churches are still doing it. And um, you, you can even go back and check any church you want. Pretty much every church has done this, where they have a live stream, still to this day. And I went back and went back to the church that I grew up in, the church that um, we were nominal Christians in. And part of the reason I think we were nominal Christians is because the gospel was really never preached clearly there. The message had been lost. It's a mainline church, and they've, a lot of mainline churches have rejected the authority of God's word. And they've drifted away from orthodox true belief. And um, many of those churches are, are small. Because people, when, when, you, when you lose the gospel, people aren't attracted anymore to the church. The gospel's all we've got to offer. And when you strip the gospel away, we become a social club. So many of those churches are struggling. And I remember growing up in that church and just hearing a lot of stories, a lot of funny stories, and that would have been so bad if they didn't end it with this sort of put guilt on you to just go be a better person. Here's some funny stories, and now go be a better person, and nothing about Jesus, nothing about my sin being taken away, nothing about the forgiveness, um, and you know, I, you know, when you guys called me to be a pastor, um, I'm sure you knew I'm, I'm, you weren't calling a great preacher. And there's a reason why I, and I've got a lot, a lot of learning to do, but I, I don't tell a lot of stories. Maybe some of you think I do, but I don't tell a lot of stories because that's all I heard growing up in church was stories. Just funny stories. And, 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 and Sunday was just a time to like hear, hear something sort of positive and uplifting, but never something that was life-changing. Never something that, that was rooted in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I needed to hear about my sin. I needed to hear about repentance. I needed to hear about His free grace. That's what we have. That's what our foundation is. That's what the church's foundation is. We don't just have that, though. We have an identity. Let's move to our second idea, the, our identity. Who are we? You know, our, your identity is the most important thing you would say about you. How you define yourself, Right? After you say who you are, your name, then you, when you describe yourself, that's your identity. You're making your identity. You're forming it. Who are you? Well, who does God say uh, the church is? Let's go to verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, 
So notice Peter, he describes Jesus as the living stone, and then he describes the church as the living stones. We're connected into Christ. And so because of that, God treats the living stone of Jesus the same as us. He loves his son. He's precious to the Father. And so if we're living stones, what Peter's saying is we're precious to the Father. We're beloved by the Father. The church is, is God's plan A, right? There is no plan B. This is his people. He's always had a people. And we're living. How are we living? We're living because we're filled with the same transforming power that filled Christ. Romans 8, 11, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same Spirit that was in Christ and raised Him from the dead is in you, church. So that's the first descriptor. We're living stones. We're living stones like Christ and we're being built up as a spiritual house. So here's the next metaphor that Peter's using. We're stones, but we're also this house where we are a stone connected with other stones. And so what the truth is, is that we're, this is a team game. Christianity is a team game. It's not a solitary game. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. Look at a brick wall when you go downtown. Christians are mortared together into a wall. We're not very useful when we're lying on the ground alone. When you are included in the church, when you are, when you are with other believers, when you are in membership with the church, when you come on Sunday and you're in the lives of other people, you build a strong body of believers. Being in a church is not only important, it is an absolute necessity for you to grow. You have to have it. I didn't know this, but C.S. Lewis, when he was first saved, did not like the church. He didn't like coming to church. He didn't like other Christians. <clears throat> he saw all the warts of, of, of Christianity, of the, of the people, of the church. He didn't like it. Then God opened his eyes to the necessity of it. And he said this, the church, why is this church so necessary for your growth? The church gets you out of your solitary conceit. The church gets you out of your solitary conceit. When you are alone, when you are separated, it's easy to become conceited. It's easy to become cynical toward the church. And when I hear about people not going to church as much anymore, I tell them, you need the church, that's important, but the church needs you too. They forget what they have to offer. They forget what they are supposed to give. You can give encouragement, you'll give teaching you'll give service there's so much you have to offer that we forget about why is the church so special well it's the only institution founded by christ he founded it and the whole world is seeking to, to retreat into separate corners and to divide the church is the one place where actually different types of people different backgrounds are actually brought together We're actually working against the division that we see in our culture today. The church is the one institution that can bring people together through the blood of Christ and through the Holy Spirit that works in the church. What else are we called? Look, look further down in verse 5. We're a spiritual house. We're to be a holy priesthood. 
what does he mean by that? We're a holy priesthood. Well, the first idea there is that we have direct access to the Father. When you are in Christ, when he is your mediator, he's your priest to come to Father, we can then act uh, and come to, we have direct access, just like the priest had direct access in the temple. And in the Reformation, this idea was, was rediscovered of the priesthood of all believers. One of my former professors, um, J.V. Fesco, defines the priesthood of all believers like this. This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests. In the Roman Catholic Church, you were dependent upon the priests to have access to God and to the Father. We're not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret Scripture or to affect God's blessing of forgiveness on them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ. And stand upon the same ground before the cross. The pastor stands on the same ground before everybody else in the church. And that also means that I'm not the only one with a holy calling. You have a holy calling too. Whether you're uh, a doctor, an electrician, work at the shipyard. uh, Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God and it's your holy calling as well as your calling in the church to serve. It puts everyone on the same level ground. And we're also called in the church to, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Look down at, through, uh, continued in verse 5. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is our worship. This is the importance of worship, which I'll come back to in the third point. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You are, your, your, you are the sacrifice. You become that living sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 continues that idea. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is what we're called to do, is to offer up sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice. And jumping down to verse 9, where he's describing who the church is, reminds us that we're a chosen race. We have a few descriptors that, that are saying that we're this new people. We're a chosen race, we're a holy nation, we're a people for his own possession, a royal priesthood. You know, when you become a Christian, you enter a new family. When you are born again, you're not born again separately, isolated. You are a part of the global church. You become a citizen of a new country. You know, we have dual, if you're a Christian, you have dual citizenship to an eternal kingdom as well as this temporal country that you're in. You're linked eternally to every brother and sister you have in Christ. You share more in common with them than anyone else. Ephesians 2, Paul talks about this one new man that's been created. This new, this new people group, this new, this new race, this new nation. And we're defined by mercy. Going down to verse 10, once you were not a people... Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's using uh, direct 
words from Hosea, the book of Hosea. You were called no mercy, but now you are, uh, you have received mercy. And so we're marked by people who have humility. Right? We've received mercy more than any other person. God be merciful to me is our rallying cry as a church. That is our rallying cry. This means we're more humble than any other person. This means we're more thankful than any other people. It means also we're more merciful to other people. If you've received mercy, you will give mercy. And if you've been in the church long enough, and I know many of you have, the church will have many opportunities for you to share mercy and to share grace and to forgive and to love. Many as seven times, Peter says. Jesus says, as many as 70 times seven. Some of y'all are getting up there. Why do we show mercy? Because we're recipients of mercy. We pursue reconciliation when offenses occur. The church will have conflict, brothers and sisters. It's not, uh, should not be surprising when sinners are together that there's going to be conflict between those living stones. You have to remember where we are in the, time, in the time frame. We're not yet in glory. We're between the already, already and not yet. Already of Jesus' kingdom, it's come, but in the not yet. It hasn't been uh, restored fully. It hasn't been consummated. So who is the church? We're chosen and precious. We're a spiritual house. We're holy priesthood. We're chosen race. We're recipients of mercy. But what's our destination? Where are we going? Final point. Where are we going? Before I answer that question, I want to first ask the question, well, what are we supposed to be doing? Right? You know what you're doing, then you, perhaps you have an idea of where you're headed. Let me go back to that idea of worship. Verse 5. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Worship. That's what he's getting at. Worship is, the, uh, is, is our number, I would say, the, the top priority of the church. It's to worship and glorify the Lord. Worship is our central objective. It's not just one aspect of our mission. It's the goal and fulfillment of all of our hope. Therefore, you know, worship's not optional. It's not something that we can just push to the side and say, I'll get to that later. No, worship on Sunday should be the, the high point of our week. It's what everything leads up to and points to should be where our greatest joy is when we get to worship with our brothers and sisters. And then it spills out into the rest of the week. We, we do worship here preeminently, but we also worship in our cars, on our way to work, in our homes. And it leads us to, to witness. Right? We're gathered in worship and we're scattered in our witness. And we're told how to do that in verse 9. How does he describe it? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into mar- his marvelous light. We're, we're all to be preachers in that sense. We're all to be proclaimers of his excellencies, of his greatness and of his goodness and of our salvation. We're to be evangelists. But where are we going? Where are we going? How does he describe our destination as a church? He, calls, uh, he, he, he explains it like this, verse 9. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, that darkness we see in the world, we feel it, we see it in Israel right now. Um, the, or, the origination of that darkness 
that seed of that darkness was in every single one of us when we were born. In our sin. In our brokenness. We were born in darkness. But through knowing Christ, and through His transforming power in us, we then become lights in a dark world. And so how are you seen as a light in this dark world? Well, more and more increasingly, if you go to church, if you love your church, if you serve in your church, if you go out and witness, your lifestyle is going to be different. And so we're going to start standing out more and more in a post-Christian culture just by our lifestyle. Just in following Christ and, and obeying Him and what he, how He told us to live, our lifestyle is going to, to shine in a dark world. And it's going to give you opportunity to share the gospel. It's not just that, it's your, it's your testimony. He reminds us from the words of Hosea that we were not a people, but now are a people. You had not received mercy, now you had received mercy. He's using this language of Hosea. If you remember the story of Hosea, um, God called Hosea to marry a prostitute, an adulterer. And it was supposed to be an image of God's pursuit and love of Israel who had committed spiritual adultery with other nations and left God. And the promise is that you, he says, you will call me my husband and no longer my Baal. You won't be, you won't be pursuing other idols. You'll call me my husband. And so that's reminded of me just of my testimony and our testimony. If you have a testimony of being saved, you were called from darkness to light. You were called from uh, adultery into making you marriage material. Right? That's what God did to you. He changed you. He changed your heart. And so you have an ability to share your testimony. That's, that's part of where we're going, is to, is to proclaim what God has done, that He's pursued you. But He's also beautified you. He's also beautified the church. He's taken us from ashes into beauty. Here I'm reminded of Revelation 21, and how he describes the church coming down out of heaven. Listen to this. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is the image of the church. This beautiful bride. And you're at a wedding. And everybody stands and turns and sees the bride coming to walk toward the group. That's the picture of the church. Cleansed, redeemed, beautiful, coming to her husband. So when you think of the church, that's our future. That is our future. Beautiful, sinless, perfect, righteous. Can you, it's hard to believe. It's hard to imagine it today. The church seems so ordinary and lackluster often. But its future is a glory that is beyond anything you can imagine. And you're a part of that. And so even now, as we meet and as we come together week in and week out, know that there's more to the church than meets the eye. There's something glorious happening. There's something glorious about the foundation we have, our identity, and our destiny. And I've often thought about, what is the vision for hope? <clears throat> I've been asked that question, and, and there's lots to do. There's lots to think about 
in the next three years, we want to do X, Y, and Z. In the next five years, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And we need to think about that. And, and the elders are doing that. And, and uh, I've tasked Dale to figure all that out. So thank you, Dale. But I also want to keep in mind of what is hope going to look like, not in five, ten years, but in, in the year 2123, in 100 years from now, what is hope going to look like? Are we building on that foundation where we will be here in 100 years, right? You know, we, we're a growing community, development springing up all around, that people are coming to us, and we need to go out to them as well. Let's have our sights set on 100 years from now and ask ourselves, are we building on the foundation of Christ? Are we striving out of an identity in Christ? And are we keeping our eyes focused on the promises of the new heavens and the new earth? Would you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious future of the church. We thank you of what you've already done in the church. The magnificent transformation you've done in the lives of the people in this room. And we look forward to the many you will bring into the church through our small efforts. Because we know it's not up to us ultimately. We know it's not up to our abilities, our strength, our eloquence. It's up to the power of the gospel. And it's up to you, our Lord. The harvest is plentiful. Lead us out, Father, with your hope that we have to offer. In Jesus' name we pray.